Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Jeff Deco is the CEO of Wealth Enhancement Group, which is an independent wealth management firm offering comprehensive and customized financial planning and investment management services. Now serving more than 50,000 households, the company has over 85 offices nationwide and is expanding rapidly through organic growth and acquisitions. Founded in 1997, Wealth Enhancement Group specializes in providing retail clients with team-based knowledge and resources they need to simplify their financial lives. Um, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, listen. I want to, you know, I want to get into WEG and its growth and acquisitions. And I also happen to know from your personal bio that you know, although you've been at WEG for twenty years, prior to that, you were in other sectors outside of wealth management and and had some M and A experience amongst uh, other types of experience back then. You know, it'll be interesting to see your perspective, especially on an industry that uh, that looks very different from when you first joined twenty years ago. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, <laughs> that for sure. But before we get to all of that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is the CEO of a uh, fast-growing wealth management firm and an aggregator integrator it was probably not it back then, but you tell me. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, you know, what did I want to be when I grew up? Well, I was a, I was a really avid ski racer. So I thought I was going to be a ski racer my whole life. Right. And I, I'm still chasing that, you know, I, I've been known to ski pretty fast these days. So I, I am, I am feeling the pain of it once in a while though, and realizing that maybe I should slow down. Uh, but I, you know, I, 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 it's interesting. I, I really wanted to be more in an entrepreneurial world. My dad, you know, our dads and our moms have lots of influence on us. And, and both my mom and dad were super entrepreneurial. And and uh, my dad worked for a company called Super Value Foods. When he joined there, it was about a $20 million company. When he finally finished, it was a $20 billion company. And they did, they worked with independent retailers, grocery retailers, right? So Time of Chains were there. And his whole role was to try to provide the the services to these these independent retailers that the big chains had, right? So he tried to try to make sure that they were getting some benefit of scale, even though they were independent. And it's funny, I woke up one day and I thought, wow, I, I'm, I'm kind of doing the same thing. <laughs> like, and, and, you know, when I was a kid, he's in the summertime, you'd fly around to these different places and, and meet with these entrepreneurs and independent retailers. And, and every once in a while, there'd be an extra seat. So he'd drag me with. And so from about the time I was 12 years old, I would be sitting in these meetings and watching, you know, my dad interact with an independent entrepreneur and, and talk about how to grow and, build the business. And, and uh, you know, I find that many days I'm, I'm doing that same thing, whether we're looking to buy a firm or, or you know, when, we, when firms come and join us, we really, we really want to continue that entrepreneurial energy and the way, the way they join us and, and that they can continue. And so it's funny, you know, what did I want to become? Well, I'm, I'm sort of kind of doing it in a weird way. 
that's funny. That's great. Yeah, there is such a parallel there. I see that. No question. You know, um, did you grow up in ski country? By the way, is that is that why you you know you were well, such? I, you know, I grew up in snow country, definitely. So I grew up in Minnesota. Okay, and uh, I raced at a little little hill called Buck Hill, and and my coach was a guy who was Eric Seiler. He's a legendary coach. He was in his sixties when I coached, and he's now in his you know I, I don't know if he, he might kill me if I say his age, but he's maybe in his nineties and he's still coaching. Wow. And uh, he's really it's really it's beautiful to watch him ski. Actually, he's got that old Austrian style. So yeah, little little Buck Hill, but little known to many people. But Lindsay Vaughn started there, and sure. you know she was quite a ski racer. Paula Moulton today, who is a ski racer at the World Cup level. And so it's produced a lot of really good skiers over the years. Love it. Love it. All right. One last question looking back. What was your first deal of any type that you could, it could be only in your career or maybe there was something younger as a kid, anything you consider a deal? Yeah. I didn't go way back here. So my mom convinced, this is been the mid seventies, convinced 10 men, you know, in the seventies, you know, I, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, the world was sort of more male dominated. My, my dad, he, my dad was a pragmatic guy. He didn't understand that one way or the other. And so they were both super successful in their own way. She convinced 10 men to back her and buying a professional soccer team and brought the Minnesota kicks to, they bought the Denver Dynamos and, and moved them to Minnesota and, uh-huh. and had a, a professional soccer team. And, and, uh, I was, I was just a little guy. I was about 10 at the time, sort of, you know, revealing my age. And, but I got to ride along and, and watch that whole thing transpire. And I remember opening day, we, we, we didn't expect anyone to show up for this game. And my dad, also the ticket manager, she came out and she said, we got way too many people. We were, we were having kind of an owner's party or something. And I was tagging along and my dad says, we're good. And we grabbed this we grab a grocery bag and a bunch of tickets and we're selling tickets. And I, and eventually I've got a grocery bag full of cash. And I walk up to the security <laughs> gate and I say, I have to bring this cash in. And the security guard looks at me like, who are you? 10 year old, you know, I'm like a 10 year old kid. And I go, look, I, I don't walk around with a bag of cash. This is supposed to go to the ticket office and I don't know where I am, but please let me in, mister. And so he let me in. And, and uh, so, you know, up, up close and personal of, of deal number one. Love it. I love it. That's amazing. All right. So let's talk about Wealth Enhancement Group a little bit. So, you know, you joined about 20 years ago, right? I know you started as a consultant, then you you know became CEO. And let, let's actually start, like, give us a, an idea of now, like how, you know, what's been the, the growth by acquisition? What, you know, kind of deals have you done? And then compare that to what WEG was like. And by the way, outside, outside WEG is the, is the shorthand. Do you guys use that yeah. internally? Or? Yeah, we use it internally. We, that, okay. that, 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 that works. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and then, and then let's sort of compare it. Like, I, I actually love to start now and then go back and compare it to what it was like 20 years ago when you first came in. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, we, we you know, the, the founders really brought this firm together with this idea of utilizing a team-based approach. And, you know, within that, it meant, you know, how do you have a team-based approach to drive organic growth? Then how do you also have a team-based approach approach to deliver great outcomes for clients, right? Sort of thoughtful and organized and, and present that concept of team to the clients. And then as you think about it, the employees themselves, you know, being engaged with each other is really powerful. So today we look a lot like that and, and, and it's anchored completely. You know, I'd love to say, oh, you know, gee, I came in, I founded thing. I didn't found this company. These, the founders were, were brilliant in the way they thought about it. And they put it together in a way that really is still, still there today. I, I talk about culturally we talk about our purpose statement. I talk about it as much as I possibly can. And it's just, it's three part, which is it starts off, we work together. It embraces this concept of team. And, and then we talk about, you know, we work together to improve the lives of our clients. And, and, you know, that's, that's like an honor. I mean, clients allow us into places 
that they don't allow many people into, right? I mean, start with just money, right? Money is one, just start right there. And, but, you know, typically that money is related to relationships and, and what are their aspirations and their dreams and their cares that they have. And they let us into that place. And so, you know, we feel that's an honor. And then the third part is, you know, we're seeking to provide the best financial advice. And of course, best is always magical, but what the real word is seeking. And those things come from, from the founding all the way back, but those today sit, you know, front and center for the type of organization we're trying to be, the type of people that we're trying to bring into our organization. You know, we want to be collaborative, right? We, we want to respect the independence and the drive of an independent person can deliver, but we also want to envelop them in a, in a team and collaborative atmosphere to those ends, right? To, to continue to grow and learn and to try to deliver the best advice we can to, to improve the lives of our clients. And so that's the cultural side. You know, what does it look like from, a, from an organizational side? <clears throat> if you go back, I mean, today we are driven, our, you know, we'll bring in roughly eight and a half or $9 billion of flows this year. And so that's really driven primarily, about half of that is new client activity and about half of that is existing client activity. And so we've always had a very strong, from the, from the very beginning, a strong lean in to how do we generate organic flows into the business. And so it was a marketing driven organization, which is actually my background. I was a marketer for General Mills and and then I marketed another company and sold it to Procter & Gamble in the late 90s. It's one of the things I loved about the organization as a strong centralized marketing approach back to this team part, right? Is there's a team of people that are going to help an advisor to you know, find new clients and grow, right? Advisors can ask for referrals. That's certainly part of it. But how do we explore other avenues and growth channels for them and, and drive that? And marketing is a really big part of that as we continue to grow. And that today is just as every bit alive as it was back 20 years ago. We, you know, we, the, the, the M&A stuff is what we all love to talk about, right? And, and it's here and it is definitely present. But, you know, I think I, I you may have to, you know, bleep this or whatever, but, you know, I, I've stood on a stage, you know, at bright places and I've said, you know, M&A is a really, really shitty way to build a business. <laughs> you know, you know, you, you have to make sure you have organic growth, right? Because the, the merry-go-round of M&A and, and this consolidation, it'll go on for a while. I'm not suggesting it's going to be over anytime soon, but it does end, right? We've seen it in other industries. And so fundamentally, we want to make sure we're building a great company that also happens to do M&A. We're not just an M&A shell in and of itself. And so we've, we were driven by organic growth beforehand. We are just as driven by organic growth today because we believe that when the merry-go-round slows down or stops, that will be the driver of, of the business continued on a go-forward basis into the future. And so we really, today you'd see us in a much more sophisticated marketing, very strong across the channels. You'd look at us, it'd be a multi-channel. We, we started off, we were a radio show driven business and we still do the radio show. One of our founders still does it every week along with with a woman named Peg Webb and, and they do a great job and it's really wonderful, but we do so many more things as well, ranging all the way from marketing activity directly to clients, to referral programs, onto supporting our advisors with marketing overlay programs they can use to find clients out of their book. And so I'd say the sophistication has changed, but the, the fundamental you know, principles of the business haven't changed on, on that side. The one place has changed is we definitely got an M&A game. I mean, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting before we go, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because one of the things, I mean, and regular listeners podcasts are going to know that you're, you know, one of the things I say, this happens to be a podcast about deals and, 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 and deal driven growth. But one of the things I say repeatedly on this podcast, whether it's in this industry or other industries, whatever, is that, you know, unless you are the 0.1 or 0.1% of the companies that are formed for the, solely for the purposes of acquisition, 
right? You know, you're, you're an act, you know, that's that, that's what you are. So, you know, almost every company out there better be able to grow organically, better be able to know how to go, get a customer, a client, another one, another one, or else you don't have a core business. You know, what what is interesting though in many industries is that I think actually there are many companies that could take advantage of uh, inorganic growth, field-driven growth, and that, that could be M&A, which is mainly yep. what we'll be talking about here, but it also could be joint ventures or strategic alliances or licensing deals or, you know, you name it, oh. um, as an additional way to strategically grow. And there are fewer companies that take advantage of that, you know, than I, than I think, you know, could be. And that was, you know, it's been the premise of this podcast uh, since I saw it over four years ago. So so let's talk about that. I mean, at what point did WEG come to start, you know, growing through deals through M&A and, you know, what had that and 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 did that accelerate at a point? What point did you raise capital? Talk about that that history. Yeah. Of the, yeah. The so, side of it. so what happened was we we decided that we were going to start to use some of our marketing activity and we said we want to go into new markets. So we were we were Minnesota, Iowa, kind of Western Wisconsin based. So, <clears throat> you know, we said, Let's go to Chicago. You know, we didn't, we didn't, there's no, you know, I think the reason was, I think it was a cheap airline flight between, you know, Minneapolis <laughs> and Chicago. And so we started our marketing activity there. We started generating, you know, leads and that, and, you know, clients and, and, you know, we worked through servicing these clients remotely. And what we found was that, you know, and even this still exists today, even if a client isn't necessarily going to come into the office, they like to know that there's pro- that they're proximate to an office that they can go to. Yeah. And so it was pretty quickly after that that we realized, okay, we've got, some, we've got new organic activity coming. We could take an advisor and build them de novo from scratch. But the fact of the matter is experience matters in this space. And really the only way that you get experience is you get into the M&A side. So, so we, didn't get into the, we didn't get into M&A with this idea of saying, oh, we want to do a roll-up. And that's really attractive financially. And so therefore, we're going to do a roll up. We got into it saying, we think we can create demand, but we really need to have a great partner with us to take care of that demand. And, that, and it was as simple as that. It was really started as really more of a talent acquisition. You know, it's hard to hire a great advisor. You can occasionally, but, but it, it's, it really comes down to the way that you bring on that servicing capability and that great talent is through M&A activity. And, and that was also one day we said, you know what, we need to find somebody. And we, we found a great advisor. And, you know, I think it was, they were about 250 million when they joined us. And this would have been circa 2014. And I think he's closing in on two, two and a half billion in, in you know, asked today and just Very really nice. partnered with, with the, the organic capabilities combined with, with his leadership capabilities and, and advising capabilities have really come together nicely. So that was back in 2014. So at that point, did you, did you guys self-fund that deal that was prior, you know, the raising outside yeah. capital? Yeah. Yeah. We totally completely self-funded and, and we, well, at the time we, we were private equity backed, right. But we, we you know, funded just completely out of cash flow. I mean, today people use, you know, use leverage and equity as a way to fund yeah. it just at the pace that things are going. But, you know, it was, it was, it was acquisition number one. Right. <laughs> right. So let's talk a little bit about that. How has the model evolved? Obviously, we don't need to talk about any, any specific deals. And, and, and we've had the pleasure of doing, you know, do, doing the deals with you, with you guys. We represented sellers and They've been very happy. So talk about how, you know, how, how the deals have evolved that because, you know, obviously the market's evolved and, you know, so, you know, what, what do the deals look like now? How have they evolved over time? Are you doing cash and equity? Are you doing, you know, yeah. what, what does it look like? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first thing is we should have bought everything we possibly could have 
in 2014 because the multiples were a lot cheaper. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, like we should have bought everything, you know. No, it it's, you know, clearly valuation has changed, you know, for sure. And and I think that's, you know, at, at the same time, you, you know, what's what you've seen is not only has as the, the the sort of consolidation change, but the platform multiples have changed too, right? So that so it's as that's worked for the platforms, it's been shared back to the to the the sellers within that in and pretty much in a, in, a, in a consistent fashion all the way through. I think that from a structure perspective, our approach has always been it's it's part cash and equity up front. And then we typically have, you know, the, what, what are the risk points? We're really looking for a shared risk profile in, in how we go forward with things, meaning that we share the risk, but we also are clear about where are those risk points. So, you know, the first part in all of this is can you transition the clients, right? So we typically do a retention component or <clears throat> essentially retaining the clients at a, at a period, you know, that we define oftentimes it might be two years out. And so that's part of it. Then the other part is the shared upside, right? So, you know, advisors say, well, I've got this, you know, I've got this list of clients that are about to come. And so then we create a, you know, we create a year two or year three shared sort of, you know, what's the growth been? The growth has been in excess of what, what we'd expect. And therefore, you know, how do we share that back? And, and, you know, this, the thing that it's funny because they're deals, right? And so as soon as people think about deals, you know, you kind of go to like, Maybe you're buying a car, right? And and you know that's a that's a zero sum game, right? Which is you're going to charge me X, and I'm going to pay that, and and then we we go our ways, and maybe I buy another car in a few years or whatever, but but it's pretty much a zero sum game. And these, you know, we've become partners, right? And so it it it's important to us that the transaction, you know, it, the day that closes is always exciting, right? The check clears and all that stuff. That's always a nice moment. Really, what matters is a year later, right? Is do we are we happy to be partners together, right? Are we, has the transaction, you know, and part of happiness of being partners together is, was I treated fairly both ways, right? Were we treated fairly? Were you treated fairly, right? Because if we're going to have a partnership going forward, like if you don't have that, then then trust erodes, right? And, sure. and all sorts of other things. And so, you know, it's really, um, you know, our goal, I always say, I always celebrate, I mean, it's nice to celebrate on day one, but really the time to celebrate is day 365 to make sure it was like, all right, we've gotten through, We've got things, you know, it's always a little transition. We're settled. We see the, we see the future and the growth and we're excited to move forward as partners. I love that. And, and so, you know, you've alluded to some things which might give us a hint at the answers to my next few questions, but I'm going to ask them so you can really lay it out. So, you know, you talk in terms of advisors coming on and, 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 you know, a year or two years, three, right? So are you, are you doing mainly deals with advisors who have a long runway? Are you doing any kind of, you know, succession kind of deals? Or I'm assuming maybe some of them have a founder in Gen 2, you know, yeah. you know, set up. So, you know, talk, talk to us about who you're targeting, who are the, the ideal. You know? Yeah. We're, I mean, just because, you know, we have a strong organic growth engine and goal in terms of what we're trying to do. So, you know, it's funny because when we, when we first got in this, you know, I talked to a few people like, we want to buy people who are retiring because they have the way they want to do things and we don't want them to do that anymore. We just want, we just want the clients. And I think that that's such a, that's such a flawed view, right? Because what I say, you know, what I'll say to people is, look, you know, if we're coming together, I'd say, all right, look, you, you've made promises to these clients. And when we come together, they are now our collective promises. So I, you know, I can't look at your client base and say, you know, the world's a nail and I'm a hammer. I mean, like you've made promises. And so we have to embrace those promises. Otherwise the clients will move on. And, and, and so you, you, know, you just can't fundamentally break those. So our view is, you know, we, we, 
you know, sometimes people retire and that happens, but we really are looking for people that have, you know, a five to 10 year runway and they are excited about growing. And in some ways, what's happened to their business is that they got in this business, it grew beyond what they ever imagined it to do because they were really good at what they're doing. But along with that came suddenly they have the burden and the overhead of dealing with that, the, the, the not so fun part of that growth. And they kind of miss out on, on, the fun part. And so our, our proposition fundamentally is, hey, come on in, we'll do all we can to take all of those, those things that are sort of scalable and we can take that burden off you. You can, you can go back to really engaging with you know, your, your junior advisors and or your clients and continue to grow. And that's, that's you know, we, we, like, we like the long run. <clears throat> yeah, that makes sense. And it's interesting, you know, because I've had a number of clients where there's you know, G1, G2, sometimes even G3. And, uh, you know, and, and that's often the tension with the with the younger advisors. And we know that, in, unfortunately, in this industry, you know, the average age of the advisors is, you know, uh, up well into the 50s. So, you know, that young, that, that next generation is uh, is more rare than it, sh- than it should be for, for the health of the industry, in my mind. So those are valuable folks. And, you know, often in those situations, the concern that G2 has about joining a, a, a place is that they think they have a lot they, more they can do growing on their own, right? And, you know, the senior person wants it, you know, it's time for them to cash out. Uh, so so that's where, you know, there is this this important mesh, you know, in a firm like yours between the organic growth opportunity and, you know, and the deal opportunity, because not only are they going to get a check when they come in, but they can, you know, they don't lose that ability to continue to grow, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and we, you know, we, our comp model is a rev share model. So, you know, that's, that creates that again, it's all about, we want to perpetuate that, that entrepreneurial energy. And so the comp model has to be consistent with that, right? You know, it's, it's hard to take an entrepreneur into a base, base plus bonus, like that just doesn't feel right. Like we get, you know, it's like, no, it's, it's, you know, it's a rev share. And, and you think about when you run a business effectively, net profit is a rev share, right? And, and so, you know, we really want to continue that along with the, you know, they continue with decisions on sort of who's on their team and how do they hire their team and, and things like that. So, you know, maintaining that. So that really leads us into a not official distinction because there's a, most firms have some combination, but they certainly lean one way or another. And again, you've sort of foreshadowed where I think this answer is going to go. But we've been talking to a lot of the folks in this series about this conversation of aggregator versus integrator, right? And there are some firms that, you know, the models are more, in fact, there are some firms where, you know, it's people maintain their own ADV and it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, they really have their, yeah. their own firm. And and then there's other models where it's fully integrated. Not only are you on the ADV, but it's the same tech stack, the same whatever, and even the same investment philosophy. And you, you know, and you have to fit your your practice and trans trans translate your practice into into the model that that firm is running. So you know, on the aggregator integrated spectrum, give us an idea of, of where you know where you yeah. guys. Well, I, if I redefine it, is that okay? So we so we look at the world as we think there's there's really the financial the financing model and there the financial model, right? So that's that's kind of you know where they're going to come in, they're going to buy part of your e-box, they might have a press on it, but you got your own ADV, right? And and look, there's there's a number of different players there. That's you know the the benefits of that is you know what there's not a lot of integration. In fact, there's really no integration other than maybe some clients things things like that. Great to Great for independence, not so great for if you believe scale matters in some ways, not so great from that perspective. On the other side, I, you know, what I would call is there's a distribution model, right? And that's kind of how you describe like, there is a way we do things here, and that is the way you're going to do things. <clears throat> and, you know, that actually is strong on the scale side, right? But it, you know, from my vantage point, it looks like it violates a little bit of the, you know, look, you've made promises to your clients, and, yeah. you know, it, it gets a little bit more towards, you know, you know, when, when Ford, you know, he was 
so that you can have the car any color you want. It's just going to be black. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, and, and, and I don't think they're, I mean, they, they're not like that, that type. Our model, we, we view in the middle as sort of a partnership model, which is we believe there are places where scale, excuse me, where custom doesn't matter to the benefit of the client. And those are places to scale, right? <clears throat> not everything has to be bespoke. And so how do we take those places and create scale where we either have mass customization or we find the efficiency such that there's room left over to do the art of the relationship and where the unique part has to be in that. And so we take off a ton from a scale perspective, but our compensation model is, is rev share, right? So it's more that entrepreneurial touching into that, a little bit more of that financing model, right? We want to find people who are still have lots of runway left. We still give them the power to sort of make their hiring decisions around the team that's serving them. And we have, they have choices from an investment perspective within that. And so they can tap into scaled solutions or not. Their decision, right? They can, they can do the custom work locally or they can tap into the scale solutions, whatever is the best way to meet the objectives of those clients for them and, and go within it. And so where do we sit on that continuum? Look, we, we're definitely an integrator on, on the parts where, where you can get, you can pull out that, that scale and that efficiency. And we do it so that at the end of the, the end of that line or where you get to that, there's resource left over to do the bespoke and custom that the client needs to have. Love it. Great. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So let's talk about, you know, give folks an idea of the number of deals, the volume of deals, you know, you do. Obviously, there are some folks out there that are doing, you know, a deal or two a year. There's some that are, you know, really, you know, have been unbelievably active and, you know, and and, and there are arguments for, you know, for, for both, whether it's time in the market, competition, ability to integrate or lack thereof. You know, some of it depends upon the model that you're running, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, so talk to us a little bit about where you guys are in terms of, you know, deal volume. Yeah, you'll see this year we'll do somewhere between probably 18 and 22 deals, roughly plus or minus. I mean, still early yet, right? But I mean, in terms of what, where we see it and what we're trying to do, you know, we're, we're, we're quite active. We're in the marketplace, you know, every day having conversations with, with everyone in the space. And, you know, when we look for, you know, we're just looking for great alignment to what we're trying to do. And, and we talk about these different models that I sort of shared there. And, you know, if we meet somebody, we can kind of, you know, we, we listen and say, you know what? what you're really looking for is this over here or that and, and help, help shape them there. But in terms of activity and growth, you know, we continue to, to be really aggressive. We've been, our, our, the other thing I would say about our acquisition approach is that, you know, we started, I talked about our purpose statement when we, when we started here, which is we work together. One of the things that we've done is we've clustered our acquisitions. We, you know, some firms say, you know, they come in and say, we're not clustering, we're all over the place. Well, if we believe that team and partnership matters, then, you kind of have to see some teammates, right? And so, you know, we've clustered very much. We started, we, after the Midwest, we went right to New York actually. And, and we're really aggressive in that, in that space and then worked our way, you know, next stop, next stops down Philadelphia, Baltimore, et cetera. And, 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 and then Boston as well. And so same thing, we recently went to California. We're going on, I think two years now and we've been, you know, incredibly active in Northern and Southern California. And, and, and it's this idea that says, 
look, we, we believe scale matters. We believe the scale of ideas and collaboration matter. And, you know, as people come in, they start to see, oh, you know, I can throw an, I can throw a question out to all the advisors here. Actually, we have an open sort of channel on that and they'll get a bunch of answers. And, and it's great. Sometimes they get, you know, like I'll, they'll get responses at like two in the morning from somebody. And I just, you know, I lo- and I read these and I just love it. And so it's this idea of manifesting team, both for the joy of the job, but ultimately to the benefit of the client. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about your capital partners. You know, that's something obviously that, you know, we, we alluded to it earlier. You and I, I mean, I've been doing stuff in this industry. In fact, we did a deal end of last year, in November of last year, for the first advisor I ever helped break from anywhere, which was 24 years ago out of U.S. Trust. And, uh, and you know, we, we did a very nice exit, you know, exit deal or more partnership with another one of the models. Actually, that was with Evidence Public, you know, so that, that was with Charity Partners, who has a partnership model, you know, as well. And so that was, I mean, very personally satisfying for me to, you know, come that full circle. But but the reason I raise that much more so is just that, I mean, it was such a different, you know, 20 years ago, 24 years ago, it was such a different time. And uh, I mean, there were no capital partners, practically. There was, there was not even lending in the space. I remember I had a bank client I was trying to convince to get in into the space as a lender because I thought it was such a good opportunity. He had bought one RA firm and then, and, and then, <laughs> The 2008 crisis hit and they like ignored it because they were focusing on their core right. business. I'm like, you're in the wrong business. Don't like bank, bank purchase of RAs usually don't go well. Get in, but you should lend them this way. You provide capital. It's a great space. In any case, so you know, obviously it's a whole different game now and there are major players involved. And, and it's gotten where even the, you know, the sellers, the, the counterparties are looking at who the capital partners are, right? And then also yeah. align with what are the expectations there, right? Because, you know, outside capital comes with expectations and is the plan to that you're going to go public is the plan you can be around. So, you know, is, is go, not to mention any names, but Goldman Sachs can gobble you up when you can't raise further capital, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I see that half kiddingly, but it's true. I mean, those are things that concern folks. So what's, uh, talk to us about your capital partners and what sort of the, the vision is and expectations. Yeah. 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 So we have two capital partners, TA Associates. They've been in the private equity space for, I think 50 years, you know, your partners and then Onyx, who's been around for a long time as well, Canadian based firm, both, you know, seasoned and experienced in financial services. And so, you know, I think if I'm, if I'm a seller, you definitely want to understand the, who those capital partners are. What is their, what is their approach? What's their reputation and knowledge within the space? We've, we've had four private equity firms. We started with Norwest Equity Partners back in 2007, actually on the eve of the great financial crisis. And they were, exactly the kind of partner I needed at that time. You know, I was, I, I'd been, I'd worked with PE before I got into the space. And I think the messages are not all the same, right? They have different, different models. Like you look at a, a you know, you know, Norwest Equity Partners has historically, you know, they, they've been more in the manufacturing space, came into the service space. Well, they, why were they important to us? They helped us mature as an organization. We were sort of, this is back in 2008. When we came to 2014, you know, we were starting, we had done our first acquisition and we were looking to do more. Let Your Capital, which was run by, you know, was founded by Don Marin. I mean, you know, I learned more in a five minute conversation with Don Marin. You know, he, he built Payne Weber, you know, and, and, and he'd, he'd run the playbook in a different space. And, and, you know, he, the intellectual capital that they gave to us from an acquisition, you know, starting our acquisition activity was really powerful. And really aligned. And then as we went to to TA, you know, we we built our platforms and we're ready to go. TA is a growth equity firm, right? And that was exactly the right type of firm. We were we had built the capabilities of stability in terms of being able to execute. And then now it was time to do it at scale and speed. And and so 
you know, the key is it's not just who is the private equity firm, but why are they aligned? What, what are the, where are they aligned with, you know, the company itself in terms of what the company is trying to do that really matters? Because if there's a conflict there in the, in the forward vision, that's, what, that's when things go awry, right? I mean, you know, people, people always have this vision that the private equity space is deeply involved in the business. And, you know, it, it's just like, if they're deeply involved, that usually means it's not going well. <laughs> problem, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, these, these, these partners, you know, they're on six to eight different, you know, portfolio companies, boards. They're, they're busy, right? And they're looking for the next deal or they're taking a deal to market or whatever it might be. Like, they're, they're not, they, they don't, you know, what they want to do is they want to, you know, they give people, you know, they, they make money in a couple of basic ways, raise capital, deploy it well, harvest. Nowhere in there is operate company <laughs> or, or, or even bug CEO. I mean, it just isn't part of it. Like there's just none of that. Right. And so, you know, if you, if you run your company in a way that you have tight, you know, we have very tight sort of controls around how we have expense management that comes from my brand management days at General Mills. Actually, I was just, I just saw one of my buddies from General Mills recently. I told him I was still running the same financial add up process that we used at General Mills and, and, you know, and it's tri- tight and it's transparent all the way to the board, right? That they're yeah. great. They see everything. And, and, you know, I think the key when you're working with capital partners that I have is I, I tell them, here's what we're trying to do. And then I come back and say, well, here's where I screwed up. <laughs> like, let me just tell you where I failed first. You know, oh yeah, we have some really good news too, but, but here's where we failed and here's what I'm doing about it. And they're like, okay, you know, I mean, got it. You know, it's, it's when you, when you don't bring that transparency and you don't have that alignment and that, and again, that's where I think if I'm a seller, I look and say, what is the vision of the company? How does that align with what that P firm looks like? And then just generally, what's, what's my sense of how they have that relationship and, okay. and if they're if they're aligned and they're transparent, yeah, PE firms are working with their other portfolio companies because there's there's always trouble somewhere. So what is the what is the vision and the plan, Wag? You know, and and the PE firms and and you know, obviously somebody coming in there's an equity piece, right? So part of what you know, one of the things that I really push with my clients is that they should be looking at a transaction with a firm like yours as two deals. Uh, yeah. One deal is 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 the buyout of their of their piece for the cash they're getting, right? And then they should be treating the equity portion as if they got that ca- the cash value of that as well. And now they're making an investment decision, right? Into because that's really what they're doing. You, we're just skipping a step, right? If they're getting ten to twenty percent or whatever the number is of their you know of, of their piece in equity, they've essentially you know made an investment decision. And a lot of people, unfortunately, you know, sort of skip over that. And listen, it's one thing if you're getting enough cash where you think. The equity's gravy. Okay, maybe you know, but but still, you know, you should be looking at it as investment decision. So um, when people are making that investment decision, either consciously, hopefully, or subconsciously, in WEG by taking equity, you know, what wh- what is the value proposition of that? Are they, you know, are they playing for yeah. exit? Is that going to is there ways they monetize that? You know, when if they retire, like, you know, what, what's the model there? Well, I, I mean, that's a great thing about P part partners, right? Is that you know, it's, as you think about someone coming and selling, is you know. They, they, the, the third part of that is they harvest their investments, right? Yeah, they sell, they sell, and so you know that's what I think is great because they're gonna they're gonna have a liquidity cadence every you know period of years, right? And that's great for someone coming in a seller, right? Because you're coming in as a seller, you're gonna be a minority partner most likely in the firm, which means you don't really have control. So you know if you go in and the CEO has all the control, he or she may never sell. Right. Well, I don't have a choice. Like I, we'll, right. we'll, we'll, we'll create, you know, we'll, I always say we open up our company to the markets one day 
out of every five years, right? You know, which is everyone's going to be able to sell or buy or whatever within that day. And, and, and that's, that's really the nature of it. And so I think I'm an, I'm a big fan of the PE space. You got to make sure you get the right partner. Sure. I think that, you know, as you look at us, I don't, I don't have any great need to be public. I mean, I think the markets kind of talk, I mean, some recent transactions that have announced sort of yep. about public space, the private space has definitely valued this space in a, in a better way for companies than the public space has. I think some of that has to do with when you think about the maturity of the space itself. You know, when I think about the maturity, the process maturity, when I was at a place like General Mills, or I sold the company actually to one of the companies I was with, I sold the Procter & Gamble versus the process maturity of where the RIA space is. I think we have a ways to go before we're, we're sure. sort of, you know, totally set where the, where the public space will be comfortable with it. And so I think that's out there, but you know, I'm, I'm not a, I think in some ways the public space might be ego driven to some extent for people. I, you know, my view is I'm here to lead this company for the stakeholders, right? Which is our, our shareholders, our clients and our employees. And my job is to figure out what's the best capital market for us to be getting our capitals from. And I think the private space has a really long runway. <clears throat> if you look, the corollary would be, if, if people are sort of wondering why would, would you say that, I would look to the insurance brokerage business. They're about a decade ahead of us yep. in yep. terms of this roll-up process. 50-50 on public versus private. And then we're talking about large private private deals <clears throat> in terms of where they're, I mean, you know, they're, they're, we're talking billion, billion and a half to $2 billion EBITDA businesses that are still in, in the private space. And so I, you know, my view of the world is if the public market makes sense, we'll, we'll go there. But for right now, the private market makes sense. And I think there's a lot of runway left with it. Yeah. That, you know, that sort of leads me to, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, these trends and what we're seeing in the market and, and et cetera. But, you know, something that I've said on other episodes of this special series is that, you know, whereas, and we've alluded to it here, Whereas, you know, in the 20 plus years, you and I have both been involved in this industry, we've come a long, long way from where it was. But I still think we're in maybe, you know, the second, maybe the third inning of a nine inning, uh, you know, yeah. game. You know, when you look, you and I both have the benefit of having spent time in other industries. I still have clients in other industries. And, you know, I've seen, you know, there's been huge maturation compared to where it was, but compared to, you know, where, where it could go, there's, in my mind, a long way to go. Yeah, I, see, I, uh, I agree. I, I think it's... I, I think we're, I always think of it. It's funny because I, I think about it in the same way of like sort of what inning you're in. I kind of think we're in the the early like the early middle innings, you know, kind of. Yeah. And and when I and the reason I think you know initially it was kind of like everyone could do deals, and you know I think if you're a seller today, there's you know there's there's a dozen or so companies that have gotten really good at this, and and the blessing for you to wait is kind of two part. One is the valuations have gotten better. The other part is, I mean. You know the first firm, first firm we bought. I mean, the poor soul. <laughs> I mean, now it's gone, it's gone really well, and he is awesome. But and and you know, near and dear friend and partner. But but I would say, you know, our first deal, not so good. <laughs> the, 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 the efficiency of lack of the of the integration, yeah. right? Well, I mean, yeah. Well, the, I mean, listen, there is nobody I know of who has a first deal that they're like, oh yeah, when. Perfect. Yeah, really smooth. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as you as you fast forward, you know, we we've we've honed it in ways, you know, any good firm, right? They're gonna look at it, they're gonna examine, they're gonna improve the process, they're gonna see what the issues are and and create a better outcome for everybody. And so I think I think we're in that stage where, you know, it's really that's really happening. And I think I talk about chapter one and chapter two at M and you know, chapter one is really what you see going on today. I think as you look at others other industries, chapter two is when you start to get 
the 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 integrators, the aggregate, you know, they start rolling each other up, right? And yeah. you know, we'll have that. And I think you know, if you're a firm, the reason why people are doing process maturity is partly because you want to make it a better outcome from people you're bringing today. But the other thing is like. Look, today, today, this is there's essentially a multiple arbitrage in terms of what's happening to this. And then there's a growth arbitrage, right? Come join us. I mean, typically our firms, their net flows go up about two to three hundred basis points after they join us. <clears throat> and so, you know, there's a there's a growth arbitrage. Down the road, when you get the big the big guys consolidating the big guys and things like that, that's a synergy right? So so all firms, you know, if you're looking for winners in these firms, just make sure that you're looking, say, is this a firm committed to maturing as an organization and thinking about efficiency and productivity in a way that they'll be the winner in that, that chapter two as well? <clears throat> let's, let's talk a little bit about other things around the trend. You know, so on the one hand, you know, there's a lot of positive that, that's happening, in the, certainly in this industry, in terms of everything we just talked about, the maturization, the growth, the, the ecosystems that, that's been built around this, the uh, the fact that despite the fact that we've had quote-unquote consolidation, the investment space has grown because we still have a huge flow of, of, of yeah. equities coming out of other platforms, wirehouses, you know, things like that, you know, IBDs, banks, trust companies, insurance companies, that kind of stuff. So, you know, we still have great inflow, you know, into the space. Um, uh, but, you know, I, 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 on the flip side, yeah, obviously, at least in the short term, there's been some headwinds here. Interest rates going up significantly has affected cost of capital, uh, you know, concerns about inflation. Obviously, very recently we've had you know some of the bank failures, which have you know caused concern. Yeah. So, what, what are you seeing in terms of the impact, if any, on deal flow, on valuations? How how have the deals changed? How the deal flow changed, if at all? And you know, what's your view on the on the short, medium, and long term? You know, in terms of this, uh, yeah, in the space. Yeah, I think. Well, I, I'll I'll try to take it from the, from the top on that and 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 go through all that. So, I think you know, so interest, you know, kind of the interest rate change, right? I mean that. It's just math, right? It changes the value of firms, right? We all, ex- I mean, experience in the public markets, right? And 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 it has an impact on on valuation in this space. And so, you know, I think we've seen values come down a little, not not tons, right? But we've seen a little bit more. Is there's a little bit more at risk for yeah. for both sides? So it's a way to say, look, you know, this if if we all believe the yield curve, right? This is going to pass, <laughs> and therefore, you know, let's let's share that risk together and and create sort of a, a overall still ability to hit hit the number, but, but probably a little bit more at risk. And I think that's, you know, I've seen that pretty widespread within, within the space. I think in terms of, as you think about the more recent events, you know, we, we, I think the macro forces that are at work are so powerful that it's just pushing, you know, it's pushing people to sell in, in, and despite the headwinds, I, I, you know, we used to have this belief that if, if the equity markets were down 20, people would stop selling. I would say, you know, we, we tested that, you know, a year ago and we didn't see, you know, we didn't see much of a slowdown. What we saw, we saw effectively, you know, we didn't see crossover in terms of what buyers were willing to pay and what sellers were willing to sell for. And then it took a little while to get that adjusted, but we didn't see it slow down in terms of participants. And I think that as you, you continue to look forward, that's going to happen. The drivers, right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, Partly demographics, right? There's some some of that's demographics. Part of it is scale. You know, people are starting to understand how scale matters, and they see it in it. The technology, you know, the continual amount of technology you need to bring forward to to meet the needs of your clients is, you know, getting harder for smaller firms to to meet with that. And you know, as you continue to have those pressures, you know, there's just going to continue to be this pressure pressure of sale. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I sort of feel the same way. I mean, we've seen that field flow slow. I mean, just ever, you know, so slightly. I mean, but then again, last year was ridiculous. I mean, people like it yeah. was last two years were crazy. But more, more what we've seen is 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 just uh, you know, some restructuring, like you said. You know, putting some more, you know, more on the earn out or whatever. You know, just and, and you know what I what I like is that you know I think you know and sellers sometimes don't realize this is that you know buyers are. They're very willing to pay for the for the for the revenue, yeah. and even you know if it's actually going to come in, right? So if yeah. the market's down, all right, we're not going to pay you for that now, but we'll pay you for it later if it comes yeah. back. You know, so you know, there's always there's often a way. You know, people focus on sometimes on you know just on the multiple numbers when deal structure really matters. And you know, in fact, there's an old joke right in the deal world, whether it's lawyers or bankers or whatever, that. Like, you know, give me a price. I'll give you a structure. Give me, give me a structure. I'll give you a price. You know, yep. what you want ten times as much as your firm is valued. Now I can go with a structure where I can, <laughs> you know, it yeah, takes exactly. years to get paid. But you know, it's like you know, so uh, you know, so so yeah. But I mean, I you know, so I, I do see you know more adjustment in deal structure. And and you're right. I mean, I, I agree. I think the drivers are so. I mean, the outlook for this industry, especially, we got a long way to go, and there's plenty more uh, you know deals to be done. So all yeah. right, as we come to the end of our time here, before I ask you my final couple of questions. Is there anything about wealth enhancement group or your model or anything we haven't covered that you want to want to share? I, I think we've covered it pretty much. I mean, we're we're a firm. We 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 want that entrepreneurial energy as we look at at folks and you know we kind of talk about those three types of models. We're we're a we're a lean in growth company. Always have been. You know, you kind of asked how did it change. I mean, that has never changed. We. We, we, we actually got into the M&A game a little bit late. You sort of, you might have to bleep out the way I expressed about, you know, M&A. No, it's, 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 it's all good. This, although it, it's not a lot of it, we, uh, we, uh, we don't bleep out the explicit content, so to speak. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a tough way to build a business. But the reality yeah. is, it is the forces, you know, I don't, we don't get to control the macro forces as to what's happening, right? As scale matters right now, the capital is in the business. And so, you know, we, we took that as a challenge to say, okay, you know, we, we don't get to control the, the external world, but we want to build a great company here that all our stakeholders are proud to be part of both for how, how they enjoy it as, as part of an organization and, and what we ultimately deliver to our clients. And, you know, we, we, we continue to drive it every day. I mean, it's, you know, there's always some curveball being thrown at us, you know, somewhere, somehow, but we continue to go forward with that. Love it. So if people want to, you know, somebody may be interested in finding out more about Wagon General or, or as a potential, you know, partner or seller to you, what's, what's the best place for them to find out more information? Yeah. So, so Jim Con heads up our, our, our corporate development activity, great team. And uh, he's the, he's the key guy to contact. And, Sounds good. You know, we'll, we'll always we'll, we'll create a great great exploratory for anybody that wants to come and talk to us. Love it, Jeff. My final question of the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom around the world from all people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you, and how does it impact your life and business? You know, I, it that's it's great. I I I think about it, it's funny you sort of asked that. I so I was just talking last night with a friend of mine about you know, decisions that my, my ancestors made, right? I, I, my family's from Norway. It's, it's, I've been to the homestead where it was, it's just a beautiful place. And I, you know, this was in the middle, middle of the, the 19th century. And I remember sitting there thinking, why did my great, great grandfather leave this beautiful place? But you know what? I think, thank goodness he did. And Norway is a wonderful place, but 
but the opportunity that has been provided to to my family and those decisions that were made before have been really powerful. And a lot of that has been, you know, that was coming to the United States and and pursuing our entrepreneurial interest and and trying to grow companies along the way and and chase chase a, a you know a meaningful life. Thank you for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.